When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to another episode of Alec Mappa Hot Mess with Matthew Dempsey, psychotherapist. I'm Alec Mappa. I'm an actor, comedian. I'm about to say something that's going to make me sound like a white lady. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Matthew Dempsey. I am a multicultural counselor, psychotherapist, and I'm so curious what the white lady thing is you've got to say. I was working out with my trainer this morning. Was that That's it? it? That's it. Uh, no, I was working out with my trainer this morning, and he said that when he was a little boy, he would get colds all the time. And uh-huh. his parents, he's Mexican-American, grew mm-hmm. up in Silver Lake. His parents mm-hmm. would just say, oh, you have another cold, you have another cold. And then when he was an adult, he married a nurse, and she, they, he was tested for allergies, and he found out that growing up, he wasn't getting a cold all the time. He was having allergies. Oh, okay. He had chronic allergies. And yeah. I think from the time I was 14 years old, I was I was depressed for a certain portion of the year. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Every year. Yeah. All through college, I would just be irretrievably sad. And it wasn't until I was an adult and I went to a mental health professional that uh-huh. I found out I had allergies. No, I found uh-huh. out that I had <laughs> I found out that I had depression. That I had um, kind of a clinically diagnosable, is that a word, yeah. a depression and that I could get help with meds. Oh, and I yeah. didn't find out till late, late, late in my life. Yeah. And I think about all of the um, depressions I endured needlessly, Matthew. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that like happens for us, especially because we live in a society where we don't talk about this kind of stuff regularly. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of stigma around mental health. That's kind of why we're doing the show, right? To help kind of bring some more awareness to it and normalize the conversations. Is that but why like... we're doing it? <laughs> <laughs> we're doing yeah. it for the money. Yeah. No. Because uh, we're rich. No, we're rich. I, I just don't want anybody to be embarrassed about it. I think yeah. that I think that my embarrassment and the thing about me not getting any help was I was I was like, I really honestly felt like I should be able to take care of this myself. Just yeah. buck up. Just come on. Just, you know, that's that thing of like having parents who survived World War Two. Right. My problems, you know, by comparison. Right. Are trivial. Totally. Well, and also yeah. just because of the fact that you can't see it. Right. Like we're talking about something that's so. Uh, like you, you can't, you can't touch it. You can't manipulate it in any kind of physical way. Right. So it makes it hard to validate it. You know what I mean? It's right. kind of like if somebody, if somebody does have some sort of kind of like physical issue, you can go to the doctor, you can maybe take mm. a look at it. You can maybe know how to heal it um, or get stronger, but emotionally it's a different thing. So we have to be able to have these kinds of conversations to understand it, to normalize it right. so that we then don't feel like that there's something wrong with us. And we also see that there's an opportunity to be able to manage it differently. Right. Um, so there's, there's a lot of opportunities. You said, though, that you noticed that there were certain times of the year that you were feeling depressed. Yeah. And then when I was, yeah, oh, there's certain. There was was just it like this, a seasonally effective kind no, of No, it thing? wasn't. Well, in New York, it was. I mean, the minute winter happened, I yeah. was just, I would like have so many like plans for the winter. I'm going to make soups and bake bread <laughs> and go to yoga. And and then the snow would start falling and the sun would go down at four o'clock and I'd be like, yeah. I'm not moving. Yeah. And I think that I could have used some medicine back in that time to, or a light bulb shining in my face to kind yes. of 
get me up. But I remember in the 90s when I was living in Hollywood, mm-hmm. I had three days in a row and I, and I, I, rem- and I remember it distinctly mm-hmm. where I watched television all day. Um, and I didn't, this is, this is, uh, this is pre-internet. Yeah. And I literally went from, I can remember it. I went from Kelly Ripa to all the soap operas to, um, uh, Sally, Jesse, Raphael, to the um, <laughs> news, to, uh, sitcoms, uh-huh. to primetime, to late night. And I remember at the end of the first day going, I, I just wasted a day of my life. I just, uh-huh. and then the second day I did it again. And yeah. I remember lying there and I said, I did it again. I just, I did it again. And then feeling so weak and angry right. at myself for not yes. having the wherewithal to get up and get out. And then after the third day, I was just kind of like, all right, let's make a deal tomorrow. We're not going to watch television. We're just going to get up and go someplace and get yeah. out. But I had three days in a row where I was really just kind of so angry at myself and feeling weak. Totally. Yeah. Well, because there's two things that are happening at the same time. One is that you're feeling some kind of depression, right? Like whether it's something that's just happening physically for you, it's just kind of like a physical kind of like non-situational thing that's going on chemically. Mm -hmm. Um, Or there is like something maybe kind of a little bit more specific and emotional thing that can be happening. But then on top of all of that, you're also judging yourself for it. So then there's this shame that comes and, and layers on top of it. And that's what really has us take something that can be a very normal, healthy kind of like, you know, deeper kind of sadness and turns it into this kind of like depression that feels like it is immobilizing. Immo- exactly. That's a yeah. word I'm looking for. Immobilizing. It's kind of like I have so much compassion for people who are like, because, you, you know, we it's like back up. Just yeah. back up. Just do, and it's like when you're that depressed, you really like I can't. I can't. It's like I would get invited to stuff, and I'd mm-hmm. be like, I can't face anybody. I can't talk about it. I can't even turn it on. I can't. Yeah. Which, by the way, is okay. If we're going through these phases of like emotional stuff that's happening, of course, we want to check in and talk about it, and you know, maybe speak to a professional and and see if there are some opportunities for us to manage it some way, but. We also want to make sure that we know it's okay if we need mm. to be like laid out on the couch and watching Sally Jesse Raphael. Right, right. <laughs> you know, that that's okay because that's us tending. Like if you get sick, you mm. don't you don't try to say like, oh, I need to go walk around the block. Like you're yeah. like, yeah. you say like, yeah, I need to lay on the couch and like, heal. Fuck your flu. Get up. Get on a bike. <laughs> go for a hike. No, I'm sick. Yeah. So that's why it can make it more challenging again because of the stigma, the lack of awareness, the lack of you know, normalizing conversations around these Mm. things. So then we feel like there's something wrong with us. Like you said, you beat yourself up for not just kind of like doing more, just trying to power through. Right. And then, you know, and then it sinks you even deeper into it. It's like trying to fight your way out of quicksand. Like, good luck with that. Yeah. Like it would have made sense. And I wasn't seeing a therapist. I wasn't taking any medicine. And I, it's like, what a difference that would have made. Yeah. Somebody said to me. Yeah. It's, you know what? Bitch, you're depressed. I had, um, I don't think I, I don't think I talked about this. I mean, I've, I've at different times talked about moments where I was feeling kind of like down or depressed, yeah. but there was, uh, earlier this year, my mom sold my childhood home, <gasps> literally the, the house that I was born into oh. and had lived my entire childhood. And still my, my mom and stepdad now have been living there, um, you know, forever. And so for 40 years, we had that house in mm. our family and she sold that house this earlier this year <laughs> and she did it like all very quickly, sold it and she was moving and whatever. And, uh, 
I was surprised at how much I felt about it. Uh-huh. And I actually was like, I, cause I kind of thought like, okay, I know it's going to be emotional. I'll go mm-hmm. home one more time, you know, take right. some photos, take some videos, whatever. And I did all that. And then, you know, and I cried <laughs> and I came back to LA and for probably about a month afterwards, I mm. felt depressed and it was hard because I didn't understand. I was like, what is going on with me? I have no motivation to do anything. I don't mm. feel happy. I, mm. I'm like, what can, I didn't know what it was because it just didn't even occur to me that I would have such a lasting, it would have such a lasting effect losing something like it in, in my life. And then I had to have just a conversation with myself and also other people to realize like, no, that is actually a pretty significant loss in my life just because right. of what it represents and, right. and all of that. And just being able to call that out, normalize that and allow myself to actually just kind of feel depressed about and it. Grieve. And, and grieve. grieve lo- it, and exactly. grieve a, a loss. Grieve a big loss. So you're loss. saying it took you by surprise. You were like, wow, it really, it took, yeah, it took me by surprise because I thought like, oh, okay, I'll feel things when I'm back there. And what, so when I came back, I was like, oh, I should be fine now. But of course, that's not how emotions work. Mm. And so, but anyway, yeah, to acknowledge the fact that it was a, a pretty significant loss. And then I was still moving through the, the grief of that, which of course, as we know, depression is uh, a part of that. Mm-hmm. And um, and and just being able to identify that for myself, like raising the consciousness of that, did, do you helped identify me manage it, yourself, it so or much did more. Somebody pointed out to you. A, I, I'm, I don't remember exactly. I think it was probably a combination of the two, but I think at some point along the way, I kind of put it together. I'm like, oh, I think this is more of a thing than I than I was giving it credit for. Oh my god! But again, being able—that's why it's helpful when we can name these things. Then it's not like it takes it away. It just helps us ride the wave of it, it better. It makes a difference. It makes a huge difference. It makes it. I mean, imagine if you were like, you know, you did have the flu, right? And you didn't know what it was, and you just felt run down. Yeah. And you like had <laughs> the chills, and blah blah blah, and you're like, oh, I feel good. <laughs> <laughs> and you didn't know you were sick. <laughs> um, folks, the holidays just around the corner. This is a mental health podcast, yes. by the way. Yes. And uh, if you're a, a, a returning listener, welcome back. If you're a first time listener, don't forget to download and subscribe. This is the type of stuff we talk about. Yes. It, yeah, and hopefully a helpful way. But if you're depressed, um, talk to somebody this holiday season. You're not alone. Also, not, don't beat me, yourself up. Don't beat yourself up because this is one of the biggest topics that come up all the time with my clients and mental yeah. health in general. It's this time of year, the holidays. There's so much stuff, especially if, you know, you don't have a traditional family, especially mm-hmm. if maybe you identify as queer. There's a lot of times that this is a really sensitive, tender time of year for us. So, uh, you know, we queer have to depression. Really- <laughs> <laughs> queer depression. Queer oppression. Queer depression. I have to see a racist, homophobic, transphobic grandma for Thanksgiving. Listen, we're so excited because uh, uh, we're talking about depression. Yay! (laughs) Yay! We have Ginger Minge on the program today. I'm such a huge fan. She's so talented. And all the exchanges I've had with her uh, personally, she's a delightful, delightful person. So uh, let's let's bring her in after these important messages. We can't wait to talk to our guest today. She's a singer, dancer, and world-famous drag queen. You may know her from RuPaul's Drag Race Season 7 and All-Star Season 6, where she won runner-up and found worldwide acclaim. Since that time, she has appeared in major TV films, projects, TV... <laughs> 
One more time. Since that time, she has appeared in major TV and film projects, toured the globe almost nonstop, and hosts a weekly podcast called Local Queen, where she interviews local queens in the town she performs in to give them the spotlight. Welcome to the show, Joshua Allen Eads, a.k.a. the fabulous Ginger Minge. Yay! <laughs> oh, and the crowd goes mild. I love it. crowd goes, great to see you, diarrhea. Um, <laughs> great to see you. Uh, depression and go. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, I feel like depression has been my oldest and dearest friend mm. and uh, my constant enemy and the the backpack that I have carried with me throughout my entire life. Yeah. I don't remember a time in my life where there was where it didn't affect me. Yeah. Even before I knew what it was, you know, just sitting here listening to the two of you talk, it was like, oh, I feel like you're really telling my story right now. Mm. Because every year, every summer, my grandparents had this timeshare. You know, we always said, oh, we're going to the condo because we wanted to sound like we were fancy people. Yeah, no. yeah. We got this broken down hotel room in Daytona Beach. <laughs> nice. It, it, it had two bedrooms, but we slept 15 people in it for a week, every single summer. Wow. And I just remember everybody else, all my cousins, my aunts, my uncles, my brothers, my sister, having the time of their lives every mm. summer. And all I could do was lay in the dark bedroom while everybody mm. else was out and cry. And then I would have these massive panic attacks because my father would come in and, you know, he's a former military man. We, we never had like the best relationship growing up. And he would just tell me like, man up, snap out of it. Yeah. Be happy. Yeah. You, it's not about being sad. I wasn't sad. I was scared because I felt like I wasn't in control of myself. Oh. Mm. And it constantly was this battle within me to be like, well, if they're telling me, like, they're adults and they're supposed to know everything that's right. wrong and everything that goes on. If they're telling me that I have nothing to worry about and I need to snap out of that and be happy, why am I not able to do that? Right, right. Like feeling out of, out of control within your own self. Yeah. I never felt like I owned my body. Mm. I, I felt like my mind did, and my mind was something that was separate out of my control. Yeah. Um, it, it's like having the, the biggest, newest, most gorgeous computer system and not knowing how to turn it on. Yeah. All right. Yeah. How would that how would that manifest, Ginge? Like is it just an overall body feeling or just like not wanting to get up or kind of Good like question. a loss of enthusiasm? What was that like? And how old were you when you first noticed it? I, well, I noticed it my whole life, but it really started getting bad when I was probably about 11 or 12 years old. Yeah. Um, I was 54 pounds until I was 11 and I had this severe bowel obstruction. Mm, I had uh, surgery on it. Gorgeous. Yeah. Mm, <laughs> yeah. Like, bowel <laughs> obstruction. Now you're talking. <laughs> <laughs> they had to like, they had to like cut my insides apart and fuse mm. them back together. And I started gaining weight. Okay. really rapidly i was gaining like eight nine ten pounds a week and, and nobody's going sudden, you have a bowel obstruction nobody's going uh, take care of this nobody's going well this is after we had taken care of it after i had the surgery okay so i right. started to gain the weight 
Um, because before I wasn't able to eat anything. I went months having like, like surviving off of a bite of toast, right. like uh-huh. a, a cube of cheese, you know, right. <laughs> right. anything right. like that, <laughs> all the glamorous things, you know? Um, so once, once that all got taken care of, physically I felt better, but mentally I felt worse because uh-huh. not only was I packing on this weight that I had never had before, it felt like a burden to carry it around. And I also had, you know, my, my mother and my father, and my grandmother, all these people that were supposed to be in my corner, no matter what going, right. Oh my gosh, you're really getting fat. Oh, you're really porking up there. Oh, you need to cut back. And I'm like, I'm not, I'm, I'm doing what you, you bitched at me for years about not doing. I'm finally eating. Yeah. Like right. You told me to. Yeah. And uh. I can't control it. So it also felt like not only was I not in control of my mind, I was right. no longer in control of my body. Okay. Now yeah. I get it. I get it. Look, and looking yeah. back and looking back at it now, knowing what you know now, does it feel that those things were related kind of like the eating and the emotional stuff that was going on? Yeah. I mean, I feel like trauma, it, it never leaves. It never mm-hmm. leaves. You have mm-hmm. to learn how to live with it. Yeah. Right? Um, and I didn't know how to live with it because I couldn't identify it at mm-hmm. that time. I didn't know exactly what was going on, but I knew how it made me feel. And as much as I wanted to jump out of bed and run to the theater, because the theater was my saving grace. I loved plays. I loved all that. Even that got to the point where I physically could not muster the energy to roll out of bed. Right. I couldn't Mm. pick up the script and learn the lines. I couldn't make myself sing and dance anymore. All these things that I loved, I suddenly got to the point where it felt like it had no meaning. And even if it was something I desperately wanted to do, I felt like I, I just physically couldn't. Yeah, totally. Yep. And it, it was sad. Like it made me so sad. Yeah. Mm. Well, it's so, because the things like that can just feel so sad, but like you said, it's so confusing. You have no control over what's going on. You have no awareness about what's going on. And then that just makes us even more depressed because now not only do we feel sad, but now we feel broken. Yeah. And mm. like, I remember for, for me, it was like kind of in probably around the same age, like 11, 12 or so, but like really kind of then going into kind of like my early teenage years when I would really go through kind of like bouts of depression and I didn't fully understand exactly why, but then I started to kind of realize that it had to do with being gay and right. wanting to be and hoping that that could, you know, be worked out and kind of having an understanding now about how something like having to be so closeted for so long and in, in its own way is so traumatizing Mm-hmm. Um, and the effect that that can have emotionally and then also manifest physically. So I'm just curious, cause you met, you mentioned trauma for yourself. Do you feel comfortable sharing what specifically that was for you? Yeah. I mean, I've never really talked about it publicly, but I, I'm an open book because if somebody else can learn from what I've gone through and mm. kind of make, make their path easier, I'm all about it. Same. Um, I, I was, I was molested mm. when I was younger, um, and then it also, it goes back to that time where I was super skinny to the time I got super fat. Mm. And it, 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 I had some kind of weird mental connection, almost like Stockholm syndrome with the person that was molesting me mm. to the point where 
they found me attractive when I was skinny. And all of a sudden I had gained this weight and this thing that I didn't like that it happened, but I was used to it happening. They right. suddenly were no longer interested in it happening because uh, I had gained so much weight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, that's a, that's a, and that's rejection for a kid. You can't really process yeah. that emotionally. I had a friend who in, um, that I worked with, uh, who had a, something similar happen to him and it was a choir master when he was a kid who he, like you said, Stockholm syndrome, it was like, and his therapist explained it to him that even though there's, there's, there's abuse happening, there's pleasure in it. There's affection, there's love. And that's the confusing part. And when he came out as I'm gay later on, as like a teenager, this person rejected them and said, no, that's a sin in God's eyes and blah, blah, blah. So there was this wholesale rejection that he had to deal with on top of that similar, that sounds similar to what you're talking about. Yeah, well, and it was also the same thing of like behind closed doors, this person was definitely into um, same-sex relations, Mm -hmm. but was in public with such a God-fearing Christian that, that to this day, they they still have, issues and things to say about who I am and the way that I live my life. Yeah. Oh, wow. And not that I put any kind of stock into what they, they, they think or say at this point, it, it still, it, it has to make you laugh because if you don't laugh, you'll cry. Right. (laughs) Right. You look at it and you're like, if people, if these people that are liking your posts and, and are um, commenting, oh, you're so right. Da, 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 da. I'll see you at church. If yeah. they knew what you were like on the inside and behind mm. closed doors, mm. they would look at you the same way you're directing them to look at me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and such such a conflict and also still just such a mind fuck, even though intellectually we can see the hypocrisy and the ridiculous of that now. Yeah. emotionally that can really still uh, uh still stir up so much stuff and alec i, I love the points that you were making because i think those are really important ones is that anytime that there's really kind of like sexual abuse especially at such a young age too there it is so confusing because mm-hmm. there are positive things that that feels like positive things in the moment where it's connection mm-hmm. and attention also like a physiological um excited response yeah. to things sexually that are going on and that already begins to kind of tear us apart from the relationship we have with our body because we're like why why am i responding in these ways yet this is also maybe something that i don't want and it feels like your body is betraying you so then it begins conflict at such an early age there and and also the power dynamic between an adult and a child Mm -hmm. i mean we as children our social interaction with people older than us we we cede so much power Mm-hmm. In those yeah. inter- as a kid, you're just kind of taught to listen to adults. Adults know better. Like adults have access to all this kind of unknown information that we, you know, that we don't know. So we cede so much power. But you said, and it's that it stuck out to me with at the beginning of the program that it's a lifelong thing mm-hmm. of like our traumas that my therapist said the healthiest, because I, you know, in therapy, I've been in therapy forever. And mm-hmm. I will literally be in therapy. I'm like, are we still fucking talking about this? Are we still? I can't believe I'm still fucking talking about this. And my therapist says, the healthiest we'll ever be is when our stuff comes up and we go, oh, yeah, that's my stuff. Yes. It's not going to go away. Yeah. It's going to come up. We don't ever really rid our because it's on our hard drive. Yes. Yeah, you know? Unless we had a lobotomy. 
or shock treatment or something that erased those memories completely, it's going to be with us for the rest of our lives. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There are opportunities for us to to kind of tag onto that because I think that's like a, a great thing to kind of put out there and for us. Oh, to really? Because I was going to end the show there. I was going to be like, <laughs> "Good night, everybody," and that's it. You're damaged. Best of Good luck, luck with that. Uh, yeah. But there are also times uh, or opportunities for us to be able to to work on that and to be able to heal it. So the tra the trauma will always exist there, but there are opportunities for us to kind of learn and heal and and grow in ways as well. Absolutely, and. I, I now being older, having gone through therapy and, and being on medication um, to have all of these things kind of not under control, but to make them more manageable, right. you know, I, I now know how to deal with these things. And when I was growing up, I was so scared of therapy because there was this stigma about, you know, Southern men, we don't, we don't go to therapy. We don't air yeah. out our dirty laundry. We don't talk. Every about culture has that. Every culture yes. has like, I'm black. I can't get a therapy. I'm German. I can't get a therapy. I'm Asian. I can't. Everybody has a culture of, and I think it, it exists around the shame of that's too personal. Don't air your dirty laundry. Well, Don't. but also, or, or it's weakness. And also specifically kind of what you're talking about, Ginger, is that it's like toxic masculinity, right? Which this idea yeah. that if you're, if you're, if you're a man, if you identify as man or whatever, it's like, you should not be going to therapy. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Well, and I think my father, time. I think my father was also just so concerned about the fact that you know my brothers they raced cars they they did football they did baseball they did every sport imaginable and i was singing and dancing at the local community theater right i i was already far more effeminate than he was comfortable with so it became this thing of no uh, you need to be stronger you need to figure out how to fix mm. these things in yourself but my mother finally relented after i i had a, a suicide attempt Mm. And she took me to a therapist. And that was the scariest moment of my life because mm. I walked into this therapy session. It was, uh, he worked for the state because we had no money. Right. I couldn't afford a real therapist. And I, I will never forget. He smelled like cigars and I'm, he's just sitting there and I'm talking and I'm spilling my guts. Mm. And he goes, uh, when I start talking about my suicide attempt, he goes, well, you're not very good at what you set out to do. Are you? Oh, and I said, excuse me. I mean, remember, I'm like 11, 12 years old at this point. Like, oh excuse God. me. He said, if you wanted to kill yourself, you would have killed yourself. Yikes. And I, I understand that now that I'm older, I understand the, the sentiment behind if you had truly wanted to do this, you right. would have. But the fact that it scared you this much and it, you didn't cut that deep means yeah. that it was more of a cry for help. I get that. But when yeah. you're speaking to somebody who is that vulnerable and that yes. young and that scared and they're looking to you for help, mm -hmm. especially somebody who has been abused by older men and is already mm -hmm. kind of worried about letting another one in, it was so scary for me. In that moment, I felt like my my life was over. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And that sounds like a really indelicate response. To some very real problems. It's a very, that's a very kind of like, uh, it's called gestalt, like a gestalt method of therapy, which is very kind of bracing in your face, kind of like, I don't believe you. I think you're full of shit. That's the approach to that specific kind of therapy. So it could be that that therapist was really kind of like old school, kind of operating from like that particular one. Uh, really not advisable for somebody who's so young and also somebody who's speaking about suicidality, in my opinion. But yeah. um, that could be that that could have been the intention, even though it was mm -hmm. off.
It's also the thing of being an 11-year-old queer kid. I mean, when you said 11 years old and like, how could you be suicidal at 11? I remember being 11 years old and thinking, I have to brace myself before I go to school. Because at some point during the day, somebody's going to call me out for being me. Yes. And Mm -hmm. I'm going to have to find a way to protect myself emotionally and physically. And it's you think about that. And I think, you know, having kids of my own, it's like no kid should ever have to like – and this is the most carefree time in your life. You're supposed to be a yeah. kid. And I, as queer kids, I mean, maybe even less so now. I mean, there's still kids being subjected to bullying, of course. But, at, you know, our, certainly our generation and my generation, it was like, I have to walk through this minefield yeah. every day. And you add on top of that the trauma of abuse. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it was a really shitty thing for that therapist to say. And I'm so sorry that happened to you. Yeah. Well, it scared me away from therapy for a very long time. And the only mm. reason that I bring that whole story up is because it, it I could have had the help that I needed a lot sooner yeah. if I didn't let that moment define how I felt about therapy. Mm. It wasn't until a couple of years later, well, actually probably five or six years later, I was doing a show at the theater and the guy that was playing my dad, I had no clue that he was a therapist. And we, we, we hit it off and we started talking and he gave me his card and he was like, I feel like there's some other things you need to talk about. So come Uh, to my office and see me. What was the show? uh, Were you doing Oklahoma or uh, Greece or uh, was it Bye Bye? It was Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Hey. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I went into his office. He he never charged me and he became my therapist for, for, years for probably like five or six years and he helped me through everything and it was so weird to sit down and finally just be able to open up about these things that I felt were so shameful and yeah. feel like I wasn't being judged for them yes mm. yeah oh my god I feel like I want to cry when I hear stories like that because yeah. the way that the way that somebody like that could have really opened the door back up um, for you to feel comfortable enough to talk, to open up, to share, to be in therapy. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting though, because it's like, you're 11 years old, you're getting hit hard with this, obviously, you know, know. this other therapist that's not working very well or taking a great Kills approach me. to it. But that you even say something like that, um, that, uh, wait, what did you say? Something like I, I, that I, I let that moment keep me away from therapy. Right. As if that was as if that you should have known better. You were 11. It was your first experience with therapy, yet you still own the responsibility for that and how easy it is for us to internalize so much of this stuff, blame ourselves, beat ourselves up. Well, and yeah. it's because I had had my, my dad and my brothers and, and all these other people telling me, you don't need therapy. Therapy's stupid. You shouldn't yeah. go to therapy. You can figure this out on your own. Yeah. And so the one time I just break down and, and do whatever I have to do to get into a therapist's office, it backfires in my face. I'm like, yeah. oh, they were right. This That's is so why awful. people shouldn't go to therapy. Yeah. But then I have such a beautiful experience. Yes. When I really needed it a couple of years later. And that really kind of set my my life on the course that it's taken now. I mean, it's thank not, goodness. It's not easy. I, I deal with this every single day. I've been diagnosed with chronic clinical depression. I am on uh medication. I take antipsychotics every day, I take seroquel. Um, and well, that's another thing when people hear antipsychotics they, yeah. they take a step back and they go yes. oh, you're psychotic you're crazy yeah. like, no yeah. i'm not crazy it's a mood stabilizer it's just right. the name of, of what it is i take like, anti-inflammatories it doesn't mean i'm on fire <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 
flame. You are a flamer. But I mean, I'm flaming, but I'm not literally on fire. No, but it's, you know, it's interesting. I, and I love this discussion about the, the turning point of a positive experience because you're talking about all the meds that you're on and everything. And you're so ahead of the game because I know that there are people walking around right now, maybe even listening right now, who are suffering or have this stuff going on and haven't cracked it open yeah. and are just kind of like, I mean, that's, that's really why we do this podcast is like, if you're walking around feeling not well and you can do something about it yeah. and, and really the step is going past your own fear of it. And yeah. which is why uh, this is okay. Stay with me. There's a transition happening here, which is why I love <laughs> drag because drag breaks every social contract about what it means to be a man and masculine, mm -hmm. all of our shame, all of our queer embarrassment, our queer depression. Mm -hmm. You break all those contracts of how you're supposed to be as a, a, a person with a penis and you're rewarded for it. You're celebrated for it. Mm -hmm. And I yeah. think that that is the healing power of what you do. You know, you can it, turn a penis into happiness. Yeah, but it's, <laughs> no, but you go, you go into bars and everything and you're in drag and you put on a fantastic show and anybody who watches you being liberated and happy doing what you do in turn, I feel, I feel as an audience member, we become liberated as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you see somebody being celebrated for everything they were beat up for, everything that mm. they were told was wrong about them their entire lives. And all of a sudden you put a little bit of glitter on it and a little bit of smoke and mirrors and it's not only acceptable, it's celebrated. Yeah. Mm. And that's why with me, you know, with a lot of drag artists, there's a very distinct line between the person and the character. Mm -hmm. But with me, it, it never is. Like, I feel like Joshua is ginger and vice versa. Oh, really? It's just, I feel like ginger is just a heightened version of of everything that Joshua ever wanted to be, but it's still Joshua's hopes and dreams and insecurities yeah. that are being put on display for everybody else. And mm. that's why I also feel like throughout my, my journey on Drag Race, through three seasons of Drag Race, there are people who love me and there are people who hate me. Mm. And I, I, I'm okay with that because I feel like I could have gone on there and tried to homogenize myself and be what I felt was more palatable. But I felt like I spent so much of my childhood trying to make myself palatable. Right. That it put me in such a horrible dark space yes. that it made me unhappy. And yes. now that I'm finally happy with who I am, I'm not willing to compromise any part of me mm -hmm. to yeah. make somebody else comfortable. That's amazing. How much was, uh, you know, creating and then performing as ginger, how much of that was, was helpful in that healing process and being able to get there? It was wonderful. I, I've always said I never felt like I found my voice until I put on a wig. Yeah. You know, I, I grew up in a Southern Baptist town, a Southern Baptist church. My father was very, you know, don't embarrass me. Please don't mm. swish your hips. If you're going to yeah. take communion, right. please don't swish your hips right. away. Right. <laughs> it's an aisle, not a runway. Mm -hmm. um, we'll see. <laughs> exactly. But it, it was always that. It was always sit in the corner and don't talk. Just please don't uh, right, embarrass right. me. Make yourself smaller. Make yourself quieter. Yeah. Tone it yeah. down. I mean, that's yes. why I love I love stand-up because it's like I, you can get away with murder when you're on stage with a microphone. It's kind of yeah. like it becomes the champion for all of the ills that you experienced as a kid. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. absolutely. 
So you put on a wig. Where were you? Were you in Orlando? Is that where you you plopped on a wig for the first time? And you were like, woohoo, she's here. <laughs> so the first time I put on a wig was simply because I was underage. There was one queer bar in Leesburg, where I'm from. Oh. And I I wanted to go. I wanted to see drag. I what state is to... Leesburg in? It's in, it's in Florida. It's, it's about in Florida. an hour north of Orlando. Okay. But it is like a totally different world. Hmm. You know, it, it's still very much like uh, 1950s, 1960s mentality. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it was quite the scandal when we got mm-hmm. a little gay bar. It didn't last very long. <gasps> but I looked enough like my cousin's boyfriend at the time. I looked enough like his ID if yeah. I disguised myself. Mm-hmm. So it was a pimp and hoe party back when those were still located okay too. <laughs> and I put on like this little wig that I stole from um, the theater. And I put on like my sister's dress and this horrible like big lots makeup. I looked like Carney Wilson on a bender. It was terrible. But <laughs> I got into the bar and I went specifically to like drink. It was like 25 cent pitcher beer night and just like, take in the scene because I'd never been around other people and the drag show started and I was like oh my goodness and then all of a sudden they surround me the other queens do and they're there it's just turned into this thing about like oh honey those eyelashes are wrong try these that wig can use a bump up so by the end of the night I end up I mean I still look like hell but (laughs) I look like a fresher hell you know um and I felt like I had finally had some sense of community. Yeah. I had finally met people who um, were a little more in tune with yeah. who I was. I didn't feel you so found isolated. your tribe. It sounds like, you know, yeah. It's yeah. Like that, that wonderful thing, you know, I, I have my kids 17 years old and I feel like my husband just walked through the room. Did you see that? Um, <laughs> I feel like he hasn't found his tribe yet. He yeah. hasn't found yeah. his. And that really makes all the difference in the world. I, you know, I was like all the drama kids in high school. That's when I found my tribe. And then yeah. I went to NYU and then mm-hmm. I started doing stand up. And then you meet all the queer people who were in the business and everything. It's really, uh, it's liberating when that happens. It's liberating and it's also healing because now you're yeah. surrounded by a group of people who are celebrating you as opposed to other people who are shaming you and trying to make you smaller. Yeah. Well, and I was in theater for years, like my entire life I was in theater, but it was still in Leesburg. It was that teeny tiny town where there weren't gay people in the theater. It was just like the local people were done pitching hay for the day and they came down right. and they show tunes. I love it. So they were, they were nice and they celebrated me because of my talent, but I still felt disconnected. You're still queer. He's he's queer, but he's talented. You still have (laughs) like currency. Yeah. But you are talented. I mean, you've had so many legendary uh, performances on Drag Race. And I'm going to (laughs) fangirl for a second. You're Adele. Your performance is Adele. Legendary. Um, When RuPaul said to you, where do you come from? My house. Brilliant. (laughs) Um, And every single lip sync you did on the last All Stars against Mayhem Miller. Where the hell my phone? I've watched that so many times so many times and I've seen it and when it comes up on my Instagram feed I still watch it it's it's so delightful it was Was fun yeah yeah was that fun to do it was great because you know we filmed it at the height of the pandemic I remember so all of us had been performing like like we're doing this podcast right now in in our bedrooms in front of the wall in front of our computer we had been doing drag from the waist up Mm. and it was boring when when you perform 
for an audience that it's a, it's a symbiotic relationship. Mm. You know, it, 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 it's not just, I want you to sit there and watch me. I want you to give me that energy. I want you to talk to me. I want you to sing with me. I want you to dance with me. So having been stifled creatively for so long, that was the first time that I had really been given the go ahead to mm. get up in high horse drag and just dance around and have a good time with my friends. Yeah. And I think that's why that lip sync was so successful because it's fun. We just had a good time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So much fun. And now you've been traveling. You just got back from the United Kingdom. I did. You've been traveling. You're you're global now. You are <laughs> you are global all the way from Leesburg and you're global. And you have a you have a book coming out. When can we I do? Yeah. When's that gonna happen? Um, well, we're currently writing it and it, mm-hmm. it's telling a lot of these stories. It, it, the, the the main through line of the book is um, being different and trying to find ways to be okay with that and not mm-hmm. to just be okay with it, but to celebrate it. Um, I have been around the world several times. And yeah. the one thing that I have learned is that the universal language of love is food. Mm. Everybody oh, yeah. that you meet, whether they understand what you're saying, you can share some kind of beautiful energy and some kind of great moment by by sharing food. Mm. Um, so it's my life story told through recipes. I oh, love nice. that. Yeah, I I'm love really that. excited about it. It's oh. you know a lot of the girls are coming up with books now, and I've got them all on my shelf right over here. Yeah, I've yeah. read them all; they're all fun. But I feel like everything that is said in those books is something that it's been said mm-hmm. at this point, whether by them or by somebody else, it's out there. I don't want to do one of those things. So when right. when Simon and Schuster um, contacted me and they were like, hey, we really love, it was because the challenge that that you were the coach on for All right, Star 6, right. the monologues, they had seen that episode and they were like, we love this story. Let's talk about expanding it. Hmm. Um, so oh, I love really, it. That was the catalyst for me delving into just these boxes of recipes that my grandmother left me when she passed away and and all these these dishes I had picked up all around the world yeah. from these people that I've met. And I, I was like, oh, I can really tell my story in the kitchen. What I did that do? That. What did that do for you just emotionally as you were going through having to go through old recipes, family recipes, and also having to really kind of organize your the stories of, of your own life to present it? What what did that do for you? The most therapeutic thing in my entire life from from before I can even remember has been being in the kitchen cooking. Mm-hmm. I, I love doing drag. I love performing, but that's still a job. But you can just kind of tune everything else out and, and get your hands dirty, kneading yeah. the dough and yeah. chopping the onions and all that. It's very therapeutic. It's just like this beautiful moment that you can share with yourself or with anybody. Yeah. That's my um, love language so, too. I love cooking yeah, for people yeah, I too. give a shit about, you know, yeah. and I, 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 I came to it late. I didn't start really cooking in earnest until I had a kid. Mm-hmm. And then I, I cook all the time now. I absolutely love it. Listen, yeah. I want to talk to you forever because you're amazing, yeah. but we, we can't, we've, we, we have oh. a time limit, Matthew. <laughs> yes. It's like, as, as, as my um, therapist often says, well, I'm, I think that's our time. <laughs> Get the fuck out. Our time. No, um, what we we end 
all of our podcasts with a hot message from our guest. And you really, from what I've heard today, you really sound like you've identified your problem mm-hmm. and you know when it comes up. And when I said earlier, you're ahead of the game, that you're so, you have so much emotional intelligence yes. about who you are in this world, in this body, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, my my question to you is, for as far as your hot message goes, you said earlier in the podcast that you felt you'd lost control of your yeah. body and who you are. If there's anybody listening right now to this podcast who's going through something similar to what you went through, what would your hot message be to them? Uh, it is not an instant fix. There is no instant fix for everything. But that shouldn't be discouraging. That should be exciting. You know, if my therapist that I, I fell in love with um, who just connected with so well. He always told me, instead of looking at the day as all of these obstacles to overcome, you think about one thing that is Mm -hmm. beautiful and exciting. One thing that is going to be your goal for the day. And when I started looking at that, not only did it make all of these other things seem um, less uh, insurmountable, Mm. it it really kind of... um, it, it pulled the negativity out because you don't sit and focus on all of the negative things. Yeah. Even if it's just one thing that's positive, you're focusing on the beauty and the happiness and the things that pull you through the day. Yeah. So mm. if you just look at that and you let that light just kind of be that line that pulls you in, yeah. it's going to lead you to the right place. And you can't yeah. listen to what other people say. Even us on this podcast today, everybody's journey is different. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And that was another thing I really had to learn at a young age. Like what worked for my sister or what worked for my mother or what worked for my grandmother was not necessarily going to work for me. Yeah. I had yeah. to be open to being different. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I love that. Ginger, I have to tell you, I love you. <laughs> and I love the <laughs> way that you've been able. And I love, I love the way that you described your experiences in life and how you've gotten to where you've been. And the fact that at such a a young age, you had the wherewithal to know that you wanted to go into therapy. And even after having a horrible experience, still having the capacity to stay open to it. Right. And really continue to process through and get to understand yourself when everything felt so confusing. And there was so much kind of like internal conflict um, with yourself that you were able to start uncovering. That's a, a really scary notion and a really challenging process for a lot of people, but that you were able to do that in the way that you can speak so uh, kind of matter of fact, calmly, openly about the things that you've gone through, about medications that work for you, therapy that works for you, the mm-hmm. fact that you within yourself are destigmatizing therapy and mental health, and then can kind of project that out into the world. I think it's fucking amazing. Thank you. Yay. Where can oh we find gosh. you? Yeah. Where can we find you on your socials? Um, you know, the easiest thing to do is just go to gingerminge.com. All of my links to all my socials are right there. Give me a follow, send me a DM. I try to respond to everybody. It takes me a while, but I respond to everybody eventually. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) All right. Well, we can't wait to see you out in the real world. We love you. I love you too. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Ginger. No worries. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Oh, Matthew. Yes. That was like every week. We're just kind of like, that's that's the sweet spot of the show. <laughs> you know, we didn't have to encourage her to. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I heard you going, um, do you, would you feel comfortable? 
you, you, know, yeah. you don't ever want to like cry. You want to. I love that. Like, I love that. What's your invitation? hot message for the day? Oh man, I don't even know. I think yeah. there's so many, there's so much so many great stuff. ones from Ginger. I think I would just probably say, um, just be curious. Just start with curiosity. If something is feeling difficult, if something is feeling off, it's very easy to automatically just kind of throw judgment on it to feel like right. we're broken or something's wrong. Just get curious and start asking questions like, what could this be? Um, and then if you have enough, you know, if you have enough strength and, and courage to do it, reach out to somebody and start talking about it to help normalize, to help giving context, because then that's how we can uh, like not feel as broken and can start to heal. I love that. That was very good. I want you know, I love when Ginger said um, it's not an instant fix. Yeah, it's not. Because for me in therapy, I realized that it took a while for me to realize this is a mental health taking care of your hard drive, your brain yeah, yeah. and your mood is a lifelong thing because life is one change after another, one transition after another, wins, yes. losses and and navigating that is and staying healthy. Yeah. And being aware of where you are is 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 a lifelong process. It's a it's a process. It's not it's mm -hmm. not an instant fix. It's not a fix at all because nothing's broken. Process, not perfection. Where can people <laughs> find you on your social, big boy? <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> at MJ Dempsey Psych on Instagram and Twitter, and Matthew J Dempsey Psychotherapy on Facebook. I love your Instagram. If you follow Matthew on his Instagram, his your stories are super fun. You always have some kind of therapeutic message. And then sometimes you'll just kind of uh, come on and we'll get to see your handsome face and you'll talk about your issues of the day. Yeah. Um, uh, follow me at Alec Mappa on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can also find us both at the Hot Mess Pod. Mm -hmm. We love hearing from you. We get back to people. Sometimes we meet, read your messages on the air. So, so don't forget to... Um, Give us a review, download and subscribe. And again, um, if we're helpful to you, that's why we're doing this. Uh, yeah. Tune in next week and we'll have more hot mess fun. Okay, goodbye. Bye, everybody. This has been a Stage 29 podcast production. The podcast is executive produced by Patty Chiano, Laferne Cusack, and Stephanie Kaysen. Our audio editors are Jackson Ruff and Jonathan DeMatty. Callie Kelts is the social media producer. And a special thanks to the rest of our podcast crew, Rwani Horinage, William Cusack, Lisa Clark, Katie Brown, and Morgan Kaler. This podcast has been produced by Stage 29 Productions for entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast does not constitute medical or professional advice, do not reflect the opinions of this company, any of its parent companies, affiliates, subsidiaries, promotional sponsors, or advertising agencies. The views expressed by the hosts and guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. For more information, please go to stage29.tv.